chapter 21, verse 1. David went to Halemelech, the priest of Nob. And Halemelech was shaking with fear when he met David and said to him, Why are you by yourself with no one accompanying you? Halemelech knows nothing of what's going on. He doesn't know that David and Saul are not with each other anymore. You remember, Jonathan just figured this out last night. No one knows. David is the son-in-law of Saul, married into the family. He's a captain of Saul's bodyguard. He doesn't know any of this kind of stuff. But he's trembling in fear because he probably knows that Saul is not mentally stable. And all of a sudden, David, his right-hand man, the head of his bodyguard, who also just happens to be the top-notch soldier, just came all by himself to Halemelech. And, and, and in, the, in any culture where everything is highly political, that screams assassination. He's trembling with fear. Why are you by yourself? Usually when you come, you're with your family or with your soldiers, and everything is like on the up and up. But now you're all by yourself, and you just happen to be Saul's right-hand bodyguard, hitman kind of a guy. And he's afraid, because he at least knows the mental stability or the lack of stability of Saul. David replied to Halemelech the priest, The king instructed me to do something, but he said to me, Don't let anyone know the reason I am sending you to the instructions I have given you. I have told my soldiers to wait at a certain place. Now what do you have as your disposal? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. Now is David telling the truth? No. He says I'm on a secret mission from Saul, which he's not. And he says that my soldiers are out there and we're hungry. He's lying. Is David lying because he's afraid that Chalemek will turn him in and is completely selfish? Is he lying because the less that Chalemek knows, the better it will be for him? Either way, he's lying. Yeah, it could be both. (laughs) Either way, he's lying. And this is going to catch up with them later. Now, the other thing that's a big problem with this lie is you're going to the tabernacle, which is only about 15 feet by 45 feet. And you're going there for food. They probably don't have a whole lot of food, let alone to feed however many soldiers you have. So when you're starving, you're that hungry, the tabernacle is probably not the first place you want to go to with a bunch of men. So you ask for food. But it really is he's in desperation. And it could be that he's just not thinking straight. He knows that look, his family, he can't go to his family. Saul will look for him there. The family he just married into is trying to kill him. And Saul controls the army, and he's panicking and running, and he probably is not thinking straight. He's just thinking, I'm hungry, and I have nothing. And he goes to the closest place, and that's Nob, which is right here. It's all in that region. All these cities are about two, three, four miles within each other. So everything's really close to each other. The priest replied to David, I don't have any ordinary bread at my disposal. Only holy bread is available, and then only if your soldiers have abstained from sexual relations with women. So he says, look, the only bread I have is the table of showbread that's in the tabernacle. And there's 12 loaves of bread on there. And the only people who are allowed to eat this bread is the priest. One time a week, and commanded by God in his law in the book of Exodus. So he says, I can't give this to you. But I will give it to you on one condition, that you've abstained from sexual practices. Now, that seems like a weird request for... But the reason is that the law required that soldiers, while they're out on duty or out warring, to be sexually abstinent. And the reason is 
that in the ancient world, it was very common practice for when soldiers go to war, whoever they conquered, they would rape the women as a reward for their victory. And God obviously absolutely forbid that and restrict that in any kind of a way. And so the um, sexual abstinence was required of every soldier until he came back to his family. And it kept them from violating other people, and it kept them from getting morally distracted from their own marital vows. So he says, this is a typical thing. So chances are, if you're not doing that, then you're probably not doing a whole other slew of evil things that you could be doing in war. So since that would be probably the most tempting thing for men out in battle way, way far away from all their wives for a long period of time. So he says, if you have promised to not have done that, then you're somewhat purified and holy, and I'll give you the bread. Now, does he have the right to do this? Yes. And I only know that because Jesus. When we get to Matthew, we're going to see Luke, chapter 5, I think it is. The disciples are just picking heads of grain off the stalks. And they are eating it, and the Pharisees flip out, because they flip out on everything. And they say, your disciples, Jesus, are violating the Sabbath by harvesting grain on the Sabbath. Do something about it. Now, first, they're not violating the Sabbath because picking a few pieces of grain off of a stock is not harvesting an entire field. And that's no harder work than, like, twiddling your thumbs as you walk along. That was their rule. And one of the questions that's being asked is, who has the authority to interpret the law? The Pharisees or Jesus? That's the real question that's going on in that whole passage. And Jesus says, don't you remember when David was with his men and he was running away and he came to the priests and he asked for bread? And technically, according to law, now he doesn't say this part, but everybody knows what's going on. That's a violation. However, the priests gave it to him. And then he says that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And the point is that the law was made to benefit people's lives not to enslave them into legalism and hurt them. And even though there's all these commandments in the law, the primary two commandments were love Yahweh with all your heart, with all your soul, or all your life and all your muchness. And love your neighbor as yourself. So that's the whole point. So if there's a law that gets in the way of that happening, which the whole point of the law was to make sure that happened, then obviously the law of love trumps it. You can rationalize that and take that too far because lots of people in history have. But in this case, this is legit because David was truly starving and that he needed bread. And the most loving thing to do was to offer him bread and not just say, well, that's marked for other people or whatever. And so in that case, he's not really doing anything wrong here. So he gives him the bread. Because David promises that he has kept holy, that his soldiers haven't done this, nor have they ever done this. So the priest gave him the holy bread, verse 6, for there was no bread there other than the bread of the presence. It had been removed from before Yahweh in order to replace it with the hot bread on the day that it was taken away. One of Saul's servants was there that day, detained before Yahweh. His name was Doag, the Edomite, who was in charge of Saul's shepherds. And David said to Chalemelech, Is there no sword or spear here at your disposal? I don't have any sword or equipment in my hand due to the urgency of the king's instructions. 
Now the priest replied, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, is wrapped in the garment behind the ephod. If you wish, take it for yourself. Other than that, there's nothing here. David said, There's nothing like it. Give it to me. So then David, David arose and fled from Saul, and he went to King Achish of Gath. Now, David asks, Hey, by the way, don't you have a sword? Now David knows exactly that he does have a sword, the Goliath, because David's the one to put that there after he killed Goliath. So he's searching for a weapon. And here's the other loophole in his, or the other problem in his lie. If you're on a secret mission with your men and you're out going to do something, then why don't you have a sword already? And why, and if you don't, then don't your men have swords too that you can borrow one? So there seems to be some problems with his lying here. So he gets a sword. So now he's fed and he has a sword and he goes on the run. But we're given this a little side note. Doag the Edomite was also there. Now this is important because he's going to come back later. But Doag the Edomite has said that he's a chief shepherd. Now this could either mean literally he's the head of all of Saul's shepherds for his kingdom. Or it could be a metaphorical title of a commander in Saul's army. We don't know exactly which one. Either way, he's loyal to Saul, and he overheard everything that was happening. This is all pretty innocent. David's on the run from Saul. He's desperate. He's so desperate that he has no food. So he goes to the priest desperate to eat. That's the main reason he's there. Yes, he just happens to grab a weapon while he's there, but that's probably not the main reason he went. It was a secondary thing. Chalemlech is completely oblivious to everything that is going on and thinks what he's just doing is helping somebody who's in need, starving. And it's all pretty innocent. But when we get to Doag talking to Saul about what happened, he's going to spin everything. And he's going to kind of say everything that kind of happened, but he's going to put his own little spin on it to interpret in a more conspiracy kind of a way. So David flees. But where does David go now? He goes to Gath. Achish, and Gath is in Philistine territory. So, who is he going to for help? The enemy. Logically, this is a great place to go because there's no way Saul is going to go into Philistine territory looking for him. Saul can't even deal with the Philistines that come into Israelite territory. He couldn't even deal with Goliath. There's no way he's going to go into Philistine territory looking for David. There's also a good chance that David could convince the king of Achish that Saul and I are now enemies now, and the enemy of your enemy is now your friend. And there's also a good chance that he's hoping that nobody will recognize him, because it's not like they have photographs of David going around everywhere on CNN and Fox and all that kind of stuff. And most Philistines that David has met, he's killed. And they probably don't have a lot of composite artists back then either. So he's banking on a lot of stuff, but what's the problem with this? He's not trusting Yahweh. He's trusting in the foreign enemy. And this is the equivalent of going back to Egypt for your security, which the Bible is going to condemn. And, and if you, when we get to the prophets, the prophets are going to condemn Israel left and right on depending on foreign people. And everything about the Deuteronomy covenant says, don't have multiple wives, not only because the leader heart is straight, but because you're trusting in treaties with other people rather than God. Now, technically, he's not making treaties. He's not collecting wives. 
But remember, this isn't about the legalism of the law. It's about the spirit of the law. And in that way, Deuteronomy is also saying, don't depend on foreign people and kingdoms. So in a way, he's beginning to violate the Deuteronomic covenant. Not literally and technically, but in the spirit and the heart of what it was trying to forbid, David is beginning to violate. He's trusting the foreign enemy. However, on the same note, in a human level, it's understandable. And it doesn't make it right. But remember, he is absolutely panicking here. He has nobody to trust and nobody to help him. He is not safe in here because he's learned that in Ramah when Saul showed up. And he's not safe anywhere because Saul has an army hunting him down. And so in a total panicking mode, it is very rational and reasonable for him to think logically because that's what usually we do. That's our first default usually. Yes, sometimes we do default immediately to praying, but we also can probably think of a lot of times that we didn't immediately default to praying and trusting in God. And so what he's doing is very understandable, very human, very reasonable, very logical. But at the same time, he's still not trusting in God. And the other thing that really should emphasize the point that he can trust in God is, one, God made a promise to him that he would be (coughs) king. And until he becomes king, he pretty much can't die. That would violate the promises of God. And two, what did God just do for him in Ramah? He turned Saul into a prophet in order to distract him and keep him from getting David. Yes, Ramah showed that David is not safe, and Saul can find him almost anywhere. But Ramah also showed him that God will intervene and protect him. So yes, it's human, it's understandable, it's sympathetic, it's logical, But at the same time, there is evidence in his life that God will protect him and take care of him. And he's not defaulting to that. And we're going to see that over and over again. And that should be a constant reminder to us. This is what God is trying to communicate to us. Remember, the whole point of Samuel is a true leader or a true man or woman of God is someone who submits to the will of Yahweh. And everything in this story is going to be making that point. Don't trust and everything in the world, don't trust in your logic, don't trust in lawyers and doctors and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not saying don't use them. We're not going to go like Christian science here. But as your ultimate, prioritize trust and hope. And that's what David's doing. He's going to Achish. He gets there, but the servants of Achish said to him, Isn't this David the king of the land? Is it the one that they sing about when they sing and dance? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Well, that didn't last long. He's going into the palace to seek out the help of Achish, and they're immediately like, don't they sing songs about this guy? I totally recognize him. He's killed tens of thousands of us. There's no evidence that Achish would immediately kill him. On the contrary, we have no idea what Achish is going to do. Because when it came to the moment of David finally going to Achish, he chickened out. But he knew he couldn't run away because he's already in the palace or really close to the gates or whatever. And so he begins to pretend to act like a madman. And he basically, David thought about how they, what they said and was very afraid of King Achish of Gath. And he altered his behavior in the presence. Since then he... Since he was in their power, he pretended to be insane, making marks on the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. So he acts like a madman. And he's hoping that Achish will think, I don't want anything to do with a madman, which he's right. 
So Achish responds and says, the servants look at this madman. Why did you bring him to me? Do I have a shortage of fools that you have thought me, this brought me this man to display his insanity in front of me? Should this man enter my house? Now, he does, because he's probably thinking this, like, there's way too many crazy madmen in my city already. And I'm already trying to deal with them because this was, it was a huge problem. And they didn't have the resources that we have today. They basically were just out in the streets bothering people, begging for money and acting weird. And, and they didn't deal with it in any proper way because they also believed that mad people were cursed by the gods. And so they had no compassion for these people because they believed they deserved to be this way because of some sin they did. And they were afraid that if they helped the madman, they were helping somebody the gods a curse and they might bring that curse upon themselves. So they don't really want anything to do with people who are crazy and mentally insane. They, put it, they hold them at a great distance of fear of what happens to them. And you might also be thinking that David has already been punished by the gods. Here's the great warrior who's been defeating us all, and the gods have already punished him by making him going crazy. The gods have already fought my battle for me. So he basically says, I don't need to do anything to him. He's already been punished, and I don't want anything to do with him because I'm tired of dealing with these people. They're cursed by the gods, and I don't want to get any near because I'm superstitious. And David gets away. Now, this is brilliant, but he's still not trusting in God. Now, I know there's a fine line Sometimes it's very difficult to, de to determine how much you pray and how much you use the brain and the skills that God is giving you. And how to part partner those things together in every particular scenario, that's, that's hard. That's hard to figure out in a lot of areas. But at the same time, the only way you're going to figure it out is if you're praying. But at the same time, remember, prayer wasn't as easy for them as it was for us. They didn't have the Holy Spirit instant access that we did. But at the same time, God was still a relational God that would still answer prayers even without the Holy Spirit. This is the difficulty. So David gets out of Philistia. 